So what is the process? Is it proving, after all, that Lamarck was right way back? That the giraffe's offspring will inherit longer necks because mother giraffe stretches ever higher to get food from the top of the tree? This surely is heresy. So meet Anne Ferguson-Smith, Professor of Genetics at Cambridge. Well, epigenetic inheritance is a very topical area at the moment. It's very clear that environmental exposures in one generation can have an impact on the outcomes in a subsequent generation or generations. And it's very important that we really try and get to the bottom of the mechanism through which that's happening. I like to think of epigenetics as happening in the nucleus, acting on the genome and referring to the sort of originally described modifications to DNA and modifications to the core proteins that package that DNA into chromosomes, a highly regulated process that has a profound influence on the expression of genes, such that it makes sure that genes that are important for muscle development are expressed in muscle correctly, genes that are important in the brain are expressed in the brain, and those muscle genes are switched off. Otherwise it would be a mess, wouldn't it? <laughs> Otherwise it would be a mess. So epigenetic mechanisms are very... And really the question is, are these intergenerational effects of the environment transmitted, driven through epigenetic events from one generation to the next? What's important to understand really is that in mammals, epigenetic modifications that are placed in one generation are erased and reconstructed from one generation to the next predominantly. And therefore, in order for epigenetic inheritance to happen, those marks either need to be not properly erased or new ones need to be put on that are not subject to the perturbation of a genome-wide event that generally erases and reconstructs the genome from one generation to the next. So that's quite a challenge to think about epigenetic inheritance when you have this reprogramming event that goes on from parent to offspring. However, there are other mechanisms that could be responsible for this being transmitted. Can I just uh, interrupt and talk about one environmental insult which is quite famous which is always quoted and that is starvation around you know second world war and that i think lasted something like one or two or three generations with the offspring of those who went through that kind of misery there is clearly an effect on the offspring of women who conceived during the Dutch hunger winter, which was a six-month period of actually quite well-defined caloric restriction. The offspring of women who conceived before that period, during that period and after that period were compared and studied, and there is compromised outcomes in those offspring. Whether that is transmitted to subsequent generations, I don't think that there is a lot of data to really confirm that that's the case. The numbers are quite low. It's also quite important to study the transmission of sons. So sons of mothers who were undernourished during the Dutch hunger winter, because of course, women who have some of the effects of these involved metabolic defects during pregnancy can give rise afresh to new challenges in subsequent offspring. So that's why it's quite useful to study the sons of these women, because they are not providing an in utero environment for the offspring to develop. They're only transmitting the DNA from that and the epigenome, actually, to some extent, from the sperm and not providing this developmental milieu, which could confound outcomes. And there hasn't been a lot of data on that, at least not that I've seen recently. It's quite interesting looking at the ways in which this may have happened. And you're quoting a, an Australian experiment with mice. What was that? There is a classic mouse model called agouti viable yellow 
which is considered to be quite a robust model of transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. This is a model where a piece of repetitive DNA that looks like a virus has jumped into the genome next to the gene that regulates coat colour or a gene that regulates coat colour. And because epigenetic modifications have evolved to target viral sequences like this and keep them shut down, this element has recruited repressive DNA modifications that influence the coat colour of the mouse. And a highly methylated element results in a brown mouse and an unmethylated element results in a yellow mouse and an intermediate level of methylation results in mottled coloured mice. And methylation means the effect on the classical chromosome, a new... DNA methylation is an epigenetic modification, one of the best studied epigenetic modifications, generally associated with gene repression. So each mouse has a different methylation state at this element and is a different colour, ranging from yellow to brown and everything in between. But what's very interesting is that a yellow mouse is much more likely to give rise to more yellow offspring and a brown mouse is much more likely to give rise to brown offspring. And I've told you that this coat colour outcome is dependent on an epigenetic state, not a genetic state, an epigenetic state. And therefore, that has compelled many, including Emma Whitelaw, a superb geneticist in Australia, and now retired, to do quite a lot of studies on the inheritance of this methylation mark from one generation to the next in this coat colour model to try and understand transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. I suppose in terms of policy, it's bad enough when you've got things like war or hunger, dramatic effects that may be changing the overall state of the genetic inheritance in whatever way. But if it's likely to go on, you know, an echo of that kind of bad policy or misery or major upset, makes you think how you'd organise life in the world with more caution. Well, You know, biology is a wonderfully flexible process, shall we say, whereby we do have mechanisms in place to respond, to adapt. There's a difference between adaptation and evolution. And many of the mechanisms that we have in place, the physiological mechanisms to respond to environmental compromise, seem to be designed to function in the short term in order to create offspring who are better adapted to a particular compromised environment. Mm. So an example of this is in utero undernourishment, where the offspring are basically programmed to thrive better in an environment of undernourishment. However, if they are born into an environment of plenty, they're maladapted. And that comes across quite strongly. For example, you compare the Dutch hunger winter offspring with the Siege of Leningrad offspring who are conceived during the Siege of Leningrad, a much longer period, a protracted period of starvation where offspring that were born into an environment where there was continued undernourishment actually did not have the same kind of health consequences as were observed in the Dutch hunger winter when the period of undernourishment was much shorter. So this is an interesting, you know, it takes us into questions about adaptation and evolution, longer term versus short term, and the mechanisms that really underpin these physiological changes that are associated with changing environment. What do you think about the reputation of Lamarck, given this new information? He 
did all sorts of other things as well, <laughs> apart from talking about the way in which you may inherit characteristics. But um, is his reputation more burnished? I think some of the things that Lamarck talked about were not really directly associated with the kind of responses that we're talking about here. I think he was referring more to evolutionary change, longer term change, a giraffe's neck getting longer and longer because of the height of the trees. And what we're talking about here, I think, are more short term adaptations that actually we want them to be reversible. We want them to be around sensing the environment for a short period of time in order that they can revert back should the environment change. So I think this is a different biological trajectory that is much more about adaptation rather than evolution. So it's possibly meant to be adaptive to the moment, but lingers and can be passed on. Professor of Genetics at Cambridge, where she's also a Pro Vice-Chancellor, Anne Ferguson-Smith,